You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. I invite you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We are currently in a study of the New Testament book of Hebrews. Our series is called An Anchor for the Soul, and we are studying, again, the letter to the Hebrews. It's one of the greatest books in the Bible. It's a book all about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us and what that means for every area of our lives. So let's go ahead and read our text this morning, and then we'll begin. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God for if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us. And I pray that truly today this, uh, you would speak to us a word in season because you know where each of us are at. So I pray that, Lord, today as we study your word, Lord, that we would see the gospel, that we would understand it, but we'd also understand this timely message that you have for us today, this message of, of warning, uh, exhortation, and comfort, depending on where we're at. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us and we would hear your voice as we study your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we all need a, a warning from sometimes. Uh, we, we all need a warning sometimes. I was thinking about it. I, I like to go hiking, right? And so sometimes when you're hiking, you'll see these signs that are warning signs, especially about animals. And I, I kind of love reading these signs because they tell you what to do if you meet an animal, right? So um, I, my favorite one is the one about the mountain lion. Have you ever read these signs that say, watch out, mountain lions around here? Because here's what they say, basically. I'll sum it up for you. They say, okay, if you see a mountain lion, don't run away. Make yourself look really big. And if that doesn't work, fight it. Like, that's literally what it says. Like, you're just, if, if, uh, if it doesn't go away, you just kind of have to just go for it and just fight that thing, right? So it's just a warning, hey, this is what you're getting yourself into. You want to hang out here? You very well may have to fight a mountain lion and good luck. I hope you've been training for this because it's going to be bad. There are other warning signs. You know, warnings can be very helpful. In fact, I think it's one of the most loving things you can do for a person is to warn them about something. You say, hey, don't eat that because it's gross, right? Don't smell this. Don't look there, right? These are warnings that we give people. Why? Because we care about them. My favorite warning sign is maybe the one that they started putting on cigarettes a few years ago. Like if you ever, you know, go through the airport and you see the big cigarette display and they have like this six-foot poster that says smoking kills like if you smoke you're gonna die right like they made it really really bad right they want you to be warned um you know, they do this with cars. We say hey look driving a car is cool and everybody does it but hey don't forget 
What you're dealing with here is something that could kill somebody. If you deal with this wrong, the consequences could be severe and they could be tragic. So be careful. Don't drink and drive. Don't text and drive. Uh, The same is true like when it comes to fire or electricity. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the seriousness of, and the real consequences of what we're dealing with and if we don't handle that thing correctly. And the same is true in regard to spiritual matters as well. And so in the Bible, a lot of times we have words of encouragement. A lot of times we have words of comfort and words of assurance. But sometimes there are also messages of warning. And we need to hear those messages. They're important. Uh, they come from a good God who loves us and who wants what is best for us. And that's actually what we have here in this section of the letter to the Hebrews. Here the writer stops what he's been saying uh, so far in order to say something, something that he's been implying uh, throughout this letter so far. But here he wants to just say it in the plainest words that he possibly can. He says, look, let me just lay this out for you. Here's what's going to happen if you turn your back on Jesus, if you don't take hold of the salvation that is being offered you in Jesus. The context of this letter is that there were people who were very discouraged and they were considering giving up on their Christian faith. And so the writer writes to them to display, put on display for them, here is who Jesus is, here is what Jesus has done. He is the only Savior that you can ever have and the only Savior you need. He is what you need and don't miss this salvation. You see, these people, they were discouraged. The reason they were discouraged was because They had professed to be Christians, but then it had become hard in their culture and in their society to be Christians. And there was a lot of pressure for them to compromise what they believed or even give up what they believed. And some of them were were starting to want to give into that pressure. And so the writer writes to them and says, no, don't do that. And here he gives them a very solemn warning. Look, I'll lay it out for you. This is what will happen as a result. And this brings up some very important questions, very important issues, you know. I think that if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, or even if you're not a Christian, you've probably known of or known people who at one time professed to be Christians, and then after a while they were no longer professing to be Christians. And uh, and maybe they've disavowed Christianity, or maybe they've just, they haven't overtly rejected it, but they're certainly, they've certainly walked away from it. They're certainly not living in a way that's congruent with following Jesus. And so we have to ask the question, so what happens in that case? What has happened to those people and what happens to them? And that's what we're going to be talking about in our text today from Hebrews chapter 6. The title of today's message is Losing My Religion. And yes, that is absolutely an allusion to my favorite REM song. The uh, three points we're going to be looking at today that we see in this, we're going to break this section down into three points. And those are these. First, we're going to look at the warning. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time, looking at a warning. Then we're going to talk about an encouragement, and then we're going to finally finish with an exhortation. So a warning, an encouragement, and an exhortation. Let's begin by looking at the warning. It begins there in verse 4. It begins in a very dramatic way, actually. He says, For it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, if they have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. That's a very strong statement, isn't it? In fact, that word impossible is a very strong word. It's, it means there is no possibility. Now, sometimes we use hyperbole, right? Like hyperbole is when you use an exaggeration in order to make a point. So you'd be like, this is impossible. But what you really mean is it's just really hard. 
So the question is, is he using hyperbole here and he's saying it's just really, really difficult? Or is he actually saying that there is no possibility? Is he saying this literally or, or kind of figuratively? Well, let's look at some other places in the book of Hebrews where he used the same word, impossible. And let's figure out, does he use this as a kind of hyperbole or is he using this Literally, there's no possibility. Let's start with Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. It says, it is impossible for God to lie. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that it's really, really hard for God to lie? Or is it genuinely impossible? Well, I think, I think he means it. I think he means it's impossible. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Really hard or actually impossible? I'm going to say, again, actually impossible. And then finally in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 he says it is impossible to please God without faith. Really hard or impossible? I think he's saying what he means. I think he means what he says. It's impossible. When the, whenever we see the writer of Hebrews using this word impossible it's not just a kind of hyperbole or exaggeration. He's actually talking about things that are genuinely impossible. And so I would conclude that based on that when we look at this section here in Hebrews chapter 6 where he says that there are people for whom it is impossible for them to find repentance. I think he means that. And that's a very solemn thing. It's a very sobering thing. And we have to ask the question well well, who are these people? I don't know about you, I find that kind of disturbing because one of the great messages of the Bible, is it not, is that the door of repentance is open to anyone who is willing to come to Jesus and confess their sins and receive grace and mercy. And yet what this is telling us is that there are some people for whom repentance is impossible. And so who are these people? First of all, we, we know two things. First of all, they are people who are characterized by significant spiritual experience. So let's, let's think about that. They are characterized by significant spiritual experiences. Look at the list that he gives here in verses 4 and 5. We'll read through it again. He says five things in this list. He says these are people who have once been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God. And they've tasted the power of the age to come. Those are some significant spiritual experiences. Let's just go through them one at a time. They have been enlightened. What does that mean? It means that light has come in where there was formerly darkness. Light has come in. They've been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They took it in. They experienced it. They know the goodness of God. They've, they've touched it and tasted it. Now, some might say, well, maybe it means taste in the sense of like testing it out or taking a nibble and then spitting it out like a light experience of it, just a test. But again, let's go back to how he uses that word, the writer of the Hebrews. How does he use that word in other places in this book? And let's see what he means in those places. So he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse he says that Jesus tasted death for us all on our behalf. Now, does that mean that Jesus just kind of tested it out? He took a nibble and spit it out? No, it means that he took a bite of it. He, he bit into it and he tasted the, the death fully. He experienced death fully. And so this speaks, I believe, of a person who has bitten into, they've, they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted God's grace. They've experienced what it's like to be a child of God. Next, we see that they shared in the Holy Spirit. This refers to having fellowship with God, having fellowship with the Holy Spirit. They tasted also the goodness of the Word of God. They heard the Word. They, they read the Bible. They experienced the benefits of the Word of God in their lives. And finally, it says they've tasted the power of the age to come. In other words, they've had experiences 
powerful spiritual experiences. They've experienced the power of God in their life. Now, just take this list and then tell me, what would you make of a person who had all of these qualities? If this was somebody's attributes, they've been enlightened, they've, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God, they've tasted the power of the age to come. I'll tell you what I would conclude about a person like that. I'd be like, let's make this person a leader in our church. Maybe they should be the pastor. I mean, that sounds like they, they're totally qualified, like they are a candidate for leadership in any church. So when it comes to this passage, the question that everybody asks, and by the way, there's quite a bit of controversy over this passage, as you might imagine. But the question that everybody asks is, is this talking about people who were really Christians and then they fell away? Or is this talking about people who only appeared to be Christians and then they weren't, and it was proved by the fact that they fell away? And there, like I said, there's quite a bit of controversy over this, and the, it's the question of, what do we make of, how do we understand this when people who at one time profess to be Christians then turn away from it? What has happened there? Now, first of all, let's answer this question. We've got to address this question first. What is a real Christian? What does it mean to be a real Christian? Because certainly just saying that you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian any more than saying that you're an elephant makes you an elephant, right? Like you could say you're anything. It doesn't necessarily make you one. So what is a real Christian? Well, by definition... You can imagine the very simplest definition. A Christian is a person who has faith in Jesus and who follows Jesus. I like to look at what the Apostle Paul says, how he defines what a Christian is in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, here are the marks of a Christian. A Christian is a person who does three things, worships by the Spirit of God, glories in Christ Jesus, and puts no confidence in the flesh. I love that list. He says, worshiping by the Spirit of God. You see, that's more than just singing. It's more than just saying words. It means a posture of bowing down before God. It means to bow down your life, to submit to Him, and make Him Lord over your life. So to worship by the Spirit of God. Second, he says to glory in Christ Jesus. What that means is that you look to what Jesus did for you. You cling to that. You revel in it. You find your hope in what he did for you and in his life and death and resurrection. And thirdly, you put no confidence in the flesh. It means that you understand your own frailty. You understand that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself. And so rather than looking to your own goodness, rather than trying to promote yourself in your, by your own good actions to make you right with God, you look to Jesus as your Savior and you glory in Him and you put no confidence in the flesh. Here's the other thing I want to point out about those three things that, that uh, Paul lists there in Philippians chapter 3. He says that these things, he puts them in the continuous tense, right? So meaning that these are not just things that you do one time and tick the box, but these are things that you continuously do. It's not just one thing, you did, something you did in the past. It's an ongoing thing that you are actively doing. So a true Christian is marked by the fact that they are actively and continuously doing these things honoring God, submitting their lives to God, embracing the gospel, looking to Jesus for salvation and for strength. And the Bible says that when you embrace the gospel, when you put your trust in Jesus and what he's done for you, there are a whole lot of changes that take place within you. First of all, your status be before God changes. The Bible calls it being justified, right? Essentially means that God puts a stamp on your paper. He bestows you with a new status. You are forgiven of your sins. You become a child of God. That's your new title, your new status. And the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you. The Bible says 
as a seal, as a guarantee, as a promise, as a down payment that you belong to God, that you are his, and he's going to hang on to you until he brings the work of redemption in your life to completion. And the Holy Spirit inside of you begins to change you from the inside out, beginning with your desires. You begin to want different things than you wanted before because God is changing your heart. He's fundamentally changing your very nature at the core of who you are. And so the question is, a person who has experienced all of these things, who's been bestowed with that status, who's had this transforming work of God take place in their life, is it possible for a person to experience those things and then to lose those things if they do not continue to follow and believe in Jesus? Or, on the other hand, is it that if we see a person who does not continue to believe or, or does not continue to follow Jesus, that that is the proof, it's, it just means that they were never really Christians in the first place, they were truly uh, born again in the first place. I'll tell you what the Bible says. The Bible definitely talks a lot about the fact that there are, are people who from all outward appearances appear to be right with God, appear to be Christians or appear to, to be squared away with God when in fact they are not, right? So uh, let me give you some examples. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says something that's very disturbing. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, that most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. And here's what he says towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I'll tell you, for me personally, this was the verse, this group of verses was what God used in my life to get my attention as a young man, which led me to pursuing him and becoming a Christian. So he says, first of all, he says, look, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the significance of repeating that? Lord, Lord. Well, this, there is a significance for the Jewish person because in that language, in that time, the, the custom was if you wanted to emphasize something, being emotive, for example, the way you would do it is by repetition. And so you would repeat something twice. So, Lord, Lord. You see this actually several times throughout the Bible. Whenever you see repetition like that, it's, it's meant to get your attention and it's meant to express emotion throughout the Bible. So um, this is a person who at least outwardly was passionate about God. That's what I want you to see. Lord, Lord, it insinuates passion and emotion. Not only did they appear to be passionate about God, but they also appear to be committed. I mean, the very fact that they use the word Lord, which means master, insinuates commitment. So they appeared to be passionate. They appeared to be committed. And furthermore, they had significant spiritual experiences. It says they prophesied, they casted out demons. And yet Jesus says, that they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says that there are many people like this, which is particularly disturbing, right? He says there are many people like this who from all outward appearances seem to be Christians, like you would look at them and you would think that that person's a Christian, but they will not enter the kingdom of heaven because they never really knew him. Now, I don't know about you, but I do find that disturbing. In fact, I believe that Jesus meant it to be disturbing, and that's why he said it in the first place. I remember as a young man, what happened to me is that a friend of mine opened up the Bible and showed me this passage, and she asked me a question. She said, is that you? Are, are you a person who's been around Christianity 
you know the lingo, you know some of the stuff about it, but the truth is that you've never really entered into a relationship with God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And I told her, no, that's not me, but of course I knew in that moment that it was. I just didn't want her to know that I knew that. But the thing is this, what that conversation led to in my life is that it shook up the, sense of fa- the false sense of security that I had about my relationship with God, about, about my salvation. And I'll tell you what, that's exactly what Jesus was trying to do. That's exactly why he said this, because there were a ton of people in that society, and let me say there are also a ton of people in our society, who have a false sense of security. They assume that they are right with God and that they're bound for heaven, but Jesus says, watch out. There are a lot of people who are going to be surprised and not in a good way. And he's saying, I don't want you to be one of them. I want you to think about this. I want you to ask yourself that question. Have I ever entered into a relationship with God, really, by faith in Jesus Christ? There are a lot of people, like Jesus is saying, maybe, maybe you grew up going to church and you just assume that, hey, because my family's Christian, because I grew up with this, I've just always, it's always been part of my life. I know all the lingo. I know all the stuff. I guess I kind of nod my head about it. Um, so I, and you know, I'm a pretty decent person. There's a lot worse people out there than me. But you've never truly embraced the gospel and put your faith in Jesus and what he did for you. You've never really entered into a relationship with God. This verse is speaking to you. Well, there's another group in the Bible on this topic of people who, from all outward appearances, seem spiritual and healthy, um, but they're not. Let me, let me tell you about this group of people. I'll just tell you some characteristics about them. They evangelized enthusiastically. They prayed long prayers, and they prayed a lot. They're big prayers. They took vows unto God, and they strictly and carefully tithed. They gave 10% of all their income to the church. They fasted regularly. They would abstain from eating so, so they would have more time in prayer. That's a pretty impressive list, right? Evangelizing, praying, taking vows to God, tithing, fasting regularly. I would look at somebody like that and I'd be like, man, somebody does that. They're a super Christian. They're a super spiritual person. And you know what Jesus said about this group of people? He called them children of hell, right? Okay, so even though they had all these characteristics, this is what Jesus said. Oh, those guys, they are children of hell. Who were they? They were the Pharisees. They were the Pharisees, right? And so what that tells us, you know, they were very religious. Outwardly, they looked great, but they didn't have hearts inwardly that were changed and transformed by Jesus Christ. And so the point is this. It is absolutely possible for a person to appear on the outside to be a Christian, and it's absolutely possible for a person to even assume and believe that they are a Christian and yet not have ever really put their faith in Jesus and experience God's transforming work in their lives. And so, now let's go back to Hebrews in this list that we have in these opening verses, verses 4 and 5 of Hebrews chapter 6. From all outward appearances, if somebody has these characteristics, I think that we have to say that person seems like a Christian. Because here's the thing, I don't have the super special x-ray glasses that can look into a person's soul and see where they're at with God. And neither do you. God didn't hand any of those out. And so all we can do is go off of what we see. And by all appearances, a person who has these characteristics, we would say, well, that person's a Christian, it seems. And yet, it says in verse 6 that having had these characteristics, they fell away. Now, I want to emphasize there's a difference between falling and falling away. You know, Proverbs talks about, it says, a righteous man falls seven times and stands up. The wicked falls into calamity. The point, you could put it this way, the righteous falls and gets up, but the 
but the unrighteous, the wicked, falls and falls away. And so the point here is this. If you fall away from Jesus Christ, there is no way for you to be restored again to repentance. Why? Why? Is it because your sin is too much? It's just too much for God to handle? He can handle the small stuff, you know? A little bit of lying, a little bit of fudging here and there. But you know, the big stuff, that's just too much. No, that's not at all why. That's not why they're not able to be restored to repentance. I'll tell you why. It's because they are not seeking and finding repentance in Jesus. Let me explain this to you, and hopefully it'll, it'll help this all come together. So you could put it this way. This was the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter and Judas were both members of the 12 disciples of Jesus. They were part of that inner group of 12 disciples who for three years, they traveled with Jesus, they followed Jesus, they learned from Jesus, they ate with him. Day and night, they were with Jesus. And so Peter and Judas were both disciples of Jesus. And on the day that Jesus, you know, the night before Jesus was crucified, both of them, betrayed Jesus. They both turned their backs on Jesus and betrayed him on the same night. But the difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter was restored back into fellowship with Jesus, even back into a place of leadership amongst the Christians. But Judas was not. Judas fell away and he became what Jesus referred to as the son of perdition. So what's the difference between these two men? Why is it that one of them was restored and the other was not? Well, the difference between them wasn't so much their sin because really, you know, if you boil it down, they committed the same essential sin. They both betrayed Jesus. They both turned their backs on Jesus. So their sin was similar. The difference between them wasn't what they did. It was what they did after what they did. It was how they repented of their sin and what they had done. Peter repented by going to Jesus. Peter went to Jesus and he repented and he was restored. But I want you to know this. Judas also repented in a way. Let me, let me tell you about that. See, Judas, we read in the Bible, what did he do after he had betrayed Jesus? It says that he felt terrible. He felt awful about it, and he was racked with guilt and shame. And the Bible says that he felt so much remorse that what he did is he took that bag of money that he had gotten in exchange for handing Jesus over to the authorities, and he went to the temple, and he cast it into the temple. He threw that bag of money into the temple, and it scattered all over the floor. And he said, I don't want anything to do with this blood money. You see, he was remorseful. He was grieved. He regretted what he had done, and he forsook his sin. It was a form of repentance. So what was it, though, that Judas didn't do? Judas didn't seek repentance and restoration in Jesus. That's the essential difference between these two men. Judas was remorseful. He forsook what he had done. He felt awful about it. But none of that could atone for his sins. See, unlike Peter, Judas did not repent Unto Jesus, and because of that, it was impossible for Judas to be restored. You see, in order to understand this passage here in Hebrews chapter 6, you have to understand it in the broader context of this letter and what was going on with the people that this letter was written to. So, this letter was written to Jewish Christians who were facing a huge amount of pressure from people in their community because of their faith in Jesus. And some of these Christians were tempted to give in to that pressure and to create a kind of Christianity that no one would have a problem with, just to kind of dial back on a few things that people took issue with. All they would have to do is, you just have to get rid of, of Jesus and get rid of the cross, and if you did that, then no one would have a problem with you saying that you're a Christian or being a Christian anymore. And it's very easy for us to do that exact same thing in our society in our day as well. If you say, hey, hey, look, I'm a Christian, but you know, Christianity is about loving God and loving your neighbor. 
Is anybody going to have a problem with that? No. Everybody's like, awesome. Good for you. You know, say, well, you know, Christianity is about forgiving people who sin against you. It's about doing good to all people. Do you think anybody's ever going to have a problem with any of those things? Absolutely not. Let me ask you this. Are those things not key aspects of what Christianity is about? They absolutely are. The only problem is it, it, with it is this. Those things are the outer form of Christianity, but they're not the heart of Christianity. You see, they're, they're what we do as Christians, but they're not the reason why we do what we do. They're not the heart. The heart of Christianity is the person of Jesus Christ. The heart of Christianity is the cross on which he died. All of these things, loving God, loving your neighbor, forgiving those who sin against you, doing good to all people, those are things that you do, but the heart of Christianity is not what you do. It's what God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, that. The heart there, that is the reason why we do those things. The reason why we love God and love our neighbors because God first loved us and he showed that love for us in Christ on the cross in the most ultimate way. The reason why we forgive those who sin against us is because God has forgiven us in Christ because of what he did on the cross, taking our place in judgment so we could be forgiven and cleansed and receive new life and a new identity and a new status. See, we respond to that in praise and thanksgiving, in worship, and in giving him our lives and making him our Lord. And then we forgive others, and, and just as he's forgiven us. And we do good to others, and we love others because of what he has done for us. And we do his work. Why? Because of the work he has done in us. You see what I'm saying? If you remove Jesus, if you remove the cross, you might have a kind of Christianity that everybody can be happy about and agree on. But all you'll be left with is a form of religion but nothing in it that can save you. And the people this letter was written to were tempted to do that very thing, to give in to the pressure and either to, to water down their Christianity or to maybe even just go all the way back to Judaism. And the writer's writing them to warn them and he's saying, hey, look, apart from Jesus, apart from what he did for you on the cross, if you fall away from that, it is impossible for you to be restored unto God. The warning of this section is clear. If you don't continue on with Jesus, then you have no grounds for confidence in your salvation. Now I will say this. I do not believe that what this section is saying is that if you ever fall away, then you can never come back, right? And did you know there are actually times throughout history when this verse was applied in that way by the church, right? So people who had fallen into sin, one thing was they would say, okay, you were baptized, but then you sinned after that. You're done. Game over. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Here's your ticket to hell. You know, have fun. Other times that you would have persecution came up throughout history and Christians, you know, were scared for their lives or scared for their families and they would, they would reject Christ in order to save their lives and then they'd want to come back and the church would tell them, no, you can't come back. It is now impossible for you to be saved and they would point to this verse as justification for that. Now, personally, I think that's a tragedy. I think that's the opposite of what Jesus did with Peter when Peter came back to him and repented of turning his back on him. I believe that the warning of this section is this, that if you turn away from Jesus, don't think that you can find salvation anywhere else, not in any religious rituals, not in any good works that you do. It is only in him and through him that you can be forgiven and cleansed and justified and restored unto God. 
But on this topic of falling away, there are a couple of cliches that I'd like to address because I think that they're not very helpful. So, you know, you sometimes get in this kind of Christian lingo, right? Christianese, you hear Christians using amongst each other. And, and sometimes those things can be helpful. There are a few cliches that are sometimes helpful, but some of them aren't. And I think the ones in regard to this topic are not. I'm going to give you some examples. One of them is losing your salvation. You know, on the radio, I'll get these calls. People ask me, can you lose your salvation, right? If you do some kind of sin or if you turn away from God. Now, I don't like that phrase. I don't think we should use that phrase for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is that losing something is so trite, right? Like that's something that happens to you on accident. Like I lost my keys, I lost my wallet, and I lost my salvation. Maybe I misplaced it. I left it somewhere else. I just don't know where it is. I'll probably stumble on it later. As if it's something that happens to you that it just accidentally, oops, I lost my salvation again. But there's also a complication with this idea of losing your salvation. That's this. The Bible says that when you become a Christian, that you are born again to new life spiritually. So let me ask you this. If you've been born again, how do you get unborn again? The Bible says this, that when you become a Christian, God seals you with his spirit as a guarantee that you are his and that he will see you through. So how do you get, if you've been sealed, how do you get unsealed? If you've been guaranteed, how do you get unguaranteed by the spirit of God? So I don't think that losing your salvation is a phrase that we should use. It's not found in the Bible, so I don't think we need to use it. I don't even think it's biblical. Let me give you another cliche, maybe on the other end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, somebody might say, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. Now, I'll tell you, I don't like that phrase either. Again, because I believe it's kind of trite. It, it implies that all you've got to do is just check the box, say the prayer, raise your hand, get it done once, and then you're good to go. Like if you prayed the sinner's prayer when you were five years old or at junior high camp, you raised your hand to receive Jesus and, and, or you got baptized when you were a kid, you're locked in. So you can live like a hog and die like a dog and who cares, right? Because you tick the box. You punched your ticket to heaven. It doesn't matter how you live because you can be a total heathen. You can pay no attention to God for the rest of your life, but because you punched your ticket to heaven, you'll be good to go. Again, I think that trivializes the process of salvation, the work of salvation. The Bible says that salvation is something that, that has happened, right? You are saved, but it's also something that's ongoing. You are being saved, and it's something that will reach its fulfillment in the future. You are going to be saved. And so to be a Christian is, is also to be characterized by this continual actions, like we talked about earlier, of worshiping God and laying down your life before him, of glorying in Christ Jesus and what he did for you and of following him. So I say let's get rid of these unhelpful cliches and instead let's let's use the phrases and terminology that are found in the bible now we've heard the warning let's move on i want to move on to the next section where we look at the encouragement these last two will be very quick an encouragement we see that in verses 9 and 10 after giving this very stern stark warning about the consequences of falling away from jesus now the writer says let me give you at least a word of encouragement he tells them i am confident about you that you're not going to go down this path I'm confident that you guys are going to not do that. I believe that you're going to continue on with Jesus and be saved. Let me tell you another, another place in the Bible where we're told that it is impossible for someone to be saved. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, we read about a wealthy person who came to Jesus and he wanted to follow him. And this wealthy person came to Jesus and he said, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at this guy and he knew that this was an issue in this guy's life, that for this guy, his wealth was actually a hindrance between him and God. It was something that was in between him and God. And so Jesus looked at him and it says in another translation that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And then he said this, sell everything that you have and give the money to the poor. Now, Jesus didn't tell everybody to do that. In fact, Jesus didn't tell anybody else to do that, only this guy. Why? Because he was pushing the button. He knew that this was the issue in the guy's heart and in his life. And it says that when this man heard that, he became very sad and he walked away because Jesus had put him to the test. Jesus had said, if you had to choose between God and your money, what would you choose? And this man chose his money. It was a chief idol in his life. And then Jesus says this, he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A camel going through the eye of a needle, the only way that happens is if you put it in a blender, right? Like, it's not going to happen. It's impossible. And that's the point that Jesus is making. It is absolutely impossible. And the disciples responded and they said, well, then if they can't be saved, then who can be saved? Because you got to understand that common thought or the common perception of people at that time was that if you were rich, it was a sign of God's favor and blessing on your life. It meant that you must be doing some things right because God is blessing you and God is pleased with you, so you must be living a good life. And so the idea was that, wait a second, if it's hard for the rich to get into heaven, well, then there's no hope for anybody. That's what they're saying. So they ask him this question. Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus responds by saying this. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. The reality is this. It is impossible for you and me to be saved on our own. It is impossible for any of us to be saved, if it just depends on you and your goodness and you working your way to God and getting to heaven and earning your way, the chances are zero, right? Like there's no chance. It's as good as the chances of a, a Mack truck going through a keyhole, you know? It's not going to happen. It's absolutely impossible. But this is the good news of the gospel, that what is impossible for you is possible for God and he has made a way for you to be saved in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus came. He lived without sin. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. And all of that he did for you. He did it for you so that through him, you might be forgiven and justified and redeemed and have eternal life. Apart from him, salvation, forgiveness, redemption is absolutely impossible. But through him alone, it is possible. And this is the encouragement that we have, that in him, God has made a way for us to be redeemed and have everlasting life. And the section closes with this exhortation in verses 11 to 12. And the exhortation is basically this, for you to continue on, continue on in full assurance of hope because of Jesus. You can have full assurance of hope in him because of what he's done for you. And he says, I want you to fix your eyes on him. And the result of that, if you do that, he says you will be filled with two things. You will be filled with faith and you will be filled with patience. And those two things will help you endure whatever this life brings your way. Next week, we're going to continue by looking at an example of somebody who lived by faith and patience. But one of the key issues for today that I want to bring up, that this text brings up for us, is this. People are in different places 
You know, there's so many of us here today, you're, you're probably all in a slightly different place and going through different things. Some of you might be struggling today. You might be discouraged. You might be feeling like your faith is just hanging by a thread and you don't know if you're going to be able to hang on. And if that's you, I want you to know this, that when you struggle to hold on to Jesus, you need to know this, he is holding on to you and he's not going to let you go. He is not ever going to lose his grip on you. He is your savior. That means he saves you and he is faithful to finish the work that he has started in you and see it through to completion. But there might be others of you for whom this section is actually exactly what you need to hear. And what you need to hear today is not an encouragement, but you need to hear a warning. You need to hear an exhortation because maybe you've begun to drift away. Maybe you've become to, to move away from him or even to just outright turn your back on him. Maybe you're getting into some things that are not pleasing to God and you know it and I want you to not miss this. I want you to not miss this warning. I want you to take this seriously. Apart from him, it is impossible to be saved. You know, maybe you need to be challenged. Maybe you need to consider whether you're, you're like those people we talked about earlier in the study. It, you need to ask yourself that question. Have I ever really truly stepped across that line and trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior and made him my Lord? Wherever you're at today, let's fix our eyes on Jesus and find in him the source of ultimate hope, confidence, and joy. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your love for us, Lord, your unrelenting love for us. Lord, thank you that you love us enough to give us warnings, to call us out, to tell us things that are uncomfortable for us to hear, but which we might need to hear. And Lord, I pray for those today who are uh, afflicted and worried and discouraged and feeling like they're just barely hanging on. Lord, I pray that you would fill them with confidence, patience, and faith, Lord, that they would know that you are hanging on to them more than they could ever even think of hanging on to you and that you're not going to let them go. Lord, I pray for those who have drifted, those who are turning away, or those who are not even sure that they've ever really become a Christian. Lord, may today be the day when they step across that line and put down their yes and say, yes, Jesus, I embrace you as my Savior. I embrace what you've done for me on the cross, and I want you to be my Lord. Lord, wherever we're at today, each of us, Lord, would you do that work in our lives? We thank you for your love for us and for your grace and your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.